0: So before we get into the text, just I'm going to give you three basic facts, alright? The first fact is this, Christianity has had a radical impact on this world. You might, some might debate and say maybe that hasn't been all positive and there might be some fair truth to that, but Christianity's had a, a radical impact on this world. Let me read you a quote from a, a well-distinguished uh, historian. He says, it is possible; it is impossible to exaggerate the importance of the coming of Christianity. It brought with it, for one thing, an altogether new sense of human life. Where the Greeks had identified the, beauty, uh, the beautiful and the good, had thought ugliness to be bad, and had shrunk from disease and imperfection and from everything misshapen, horrible and repulsive, the Christians sought out the diseased, the crippled, the mutilated, to give them help the christian held that god was love and it took deep it took on deep overtones of sacrifice and compassion that's the one first fact christianity's had a radical impact on this world second fact christianity is founded on the historic bodily resurrection of jesus christ this is what paul says just he writes this just a few years after Jesus has risen and ascended. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Paul makes it clear, the writers of all the New Testament uh, make it clear, that the foundation of our faith is the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Second fact. Here's the third fact. The Bible treats Jesus as God's chosen king. That's what the name or the, the, the title Christ means, Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name, it's not a surname, it's his title. It's his job description. He's God's chosen king. And the New Testament, specifically the book of Revelation, shows him to be a conquering king. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So I'm bringing those three facts forward because they are facts. This is what we know to be true. We do know Christianity has impacted the world mainly for good. We do know that the foundation of Christianity is the assumption of a a historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. We do know that the scripture shows him as to be God's chosen king. And we're talking about this weekend about him being the good king. What it means to to have him as this good king. And And basically in Luke 24 we see this this time where Jesus is appearing to His disciples. This is one of the resurrection accounts. And we see in this really three main ways that Jesus shows Himself to be the conquering King. Not a conquering King in the sense of I'm going to militarily force the nations into submission. No, that's not what Jesus does. But how Jesus conquers the nations, listen, one heart at a time. And here's how He does it. Look at verse 24. Chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, speaking of these ladies who had served with Jesus, they came and certain, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices that they had prepared. That is, they're going to prepare Jesus' body. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he had spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day arise again? And they remembered Jesus' words. Now, this is the first way Jesus conquers our hearts. Listen, he does it through unlikely witnesses. Now, and for our modern ears, hearing that women were the first to, to, to find the empty tomb, we go, okay, great, nice little fact, whatever. But to a first century person the, person, the people who first read this, they would have thought, a woman? Women? Whoa, wait a second. Because in their minds, listen, they would have saw women as not being trustworthy. In fact, The testimony of a woman was only worth that of half a man. So they would have saw a testimony of a woman as something, well, not likely to be understood. They can't really be trusted by what they observe. Now, as offensive as that might be to our modern ears, that was a reality. And this is important. Because if you're going to create a conspiracy, if you're going to make up a mythology of this risen Savior... You're not going to do it by saying the first people that noticed the grave was empty were women. That would not make it move forward in the first century. And that's what God chose to do. This is why we have such a thing as feminism. And I would concur to you that biblical feminism is the sense of God has made it clear in His Word that men and women are of equal value. Now, we can debate till the cows go home about what their roles are supposed to be, but the reality is they're of equal value. The Scripture says clearly that we're one in Christ. That's a new thing that came in with Jesus, partly because God chose to use women to find um, the tomb empty. So He uses perplexed, and they're, and they're perplexed. It's not as if they're kind of going, they have some great spiritual insight. They're going, oh yes, of course it's empty. Sorry, we forgot, of course it's empty. They, they were scared to death. They had to be convinced by an angel that yes, this is what's supposed to happen. Remember what he said. So what happens is in verse 9, then they returned from the tomb and they told all these things to the 11, that's the 11 disciples or apostles, and to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles, and notice it says, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. So the disciples hear this. They're like, what? You guys are making up stories. Is this something you told the kids when they were little? I mean, what are you, what are you on about? They didn't believe them. But it says that Peter arose, he ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes, cloths. Uh, lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So, so interesting thing, Jesus in conquering our hearts and giving us a witness, it's not just these perplexed women that would have been sort of not seen as too valuable in the first century, but also doubting disciples. Again, if you're going to make up a mythology, you're not going to present yourself as the leaders of this mythology as those who doubted. That's not how it works. If you read mythology, you know what happens. The heroes are the heroes. You know, they do great things. In other words, if we were going to make this up and we were the disciples, we would say something along the lines of, and then we all, the men all saw Jesus, and we high-fived him and said, Welcome back, Lord, we knew it would happen. That's not how it worked. They totally doubted. They had no expectation that this would really happen, even though, as the angel said to the women, he had said, Jesus had said clearly, that he would die a certain way and he would rise from the dead. In fact, let me just give you some examples from, just from Mark's gospel, just one of the gospels. Mark 8.32. Then Jesus began to tell them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Mark chapter 9. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of His enemies. He will be killed, but three days later He will rise from the dead. But notice what it says. They didn't understand what He was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask Him what He meant. Now, before we go to the next verse, let me just pause here for a second, and I wonder if some of you are in that category. That you come to church, you come to a service like this, you hear the Bible being explained to you, you still don't understand, but you're afraid to ask. Why are we afraid to ask? We're afraid to ask because we're prideful. That's why I'm afraid to ask. Sometimes I have conversations with people that are educated way beyond me about topics that I have nothing about, but I'll like, hmm, yeah, interesting, interesting. It's a good word, interesting. Use the word interesting when you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Instead of just saying, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? I, I really don't know what you mean. It's funny how, I wonder how much we don't learn because we're afraid to ask. The disciples were in that same boat. But again, another verse, Mark chapter 10. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die, hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Notice that Jesus doesn't just predict his resurrection. He predicts the, the conditions and the specifics of his death and his resurrection. <laughs> Now, this is, this is amazing to me, that when God wants to make himself known, when Jesus wants to get a hold of our hearts, he does, through, through, does so through the most unlikely witnesses. You know, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I marvel that anybody ever gets anything about what, from what I say. <laughs> I, I think, you know, Lord, really? I mumble, I slur, I sound like I'm drunk half the time when I'm talking. I'm not, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not ever. But I mean, uh, why? And, and, and sometimes I feel like, why would God use somebody who could be so prideful, so stubborn, so inconsistent? But God chooses the most unlikely witnesses to make himself known. Now, we could talk a lot about some more of the historical evidence of the resurrection. If you have one of these little uh, sheets of paper near you, there's two websites that I want to encourage you to look up. Two articles. I'm not condoning everything ever said on on both these websites, but both these articles are very good articles. One that talks about the social and historical impact of Christianity, and the other that talks about uh, the historical evidence for the resurrection. I encourage you in your own time to read those articles. The point is, though, that God wants to make himself known. He wants to conquer our hearts through that, and he does so through the most unlikely witnesses. Look at verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Remember, this is the resurrected Christ. He's already resurrected, okay? But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, I want you to notice something. It's something it's, it might seem pretty obvious, but it's important for us to get this through our head right now, okay? It's possible for Jesus to be speaking to you and you not recognize that it's Jesus. Let me put it more generically. It's possible that God is speaking to your heart and you don't realize it's God. That could be happening right now. John, you're the one talking. You're not God. I know I'm not God. But God sometimes speaks through the most unlikely witnesses, and he speaks to our hearts in ways, as we'll see in a minute, cause us to think and think about things that we were blind to before. So he asked them this question. Hey, you're sad. You're having this conversation. What are you talking about? I love the fact that Jesus does that. He doesn't just kind of bolt in there, but just asks them a question. It says, verse 18, Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And and he said to them, What things? Now, this uh, important little side note to recognize. When he says, when Cleopas says, Are you the only stranger? He's saying, Look, everybody knows there was this man, Jesus, and that he's been crucified, and that there's this rumor around that he's risen from the dead. This is important because you need to recognize that there are non-biblical sources that affirm these realities. There are Roman historians that affirm that there was this, this Jesus uh, who was a, a, a rabbi, a popular teacher, that was uh, crucified by the Romans, and rumor had it he had risen from the dead. You can confirm that through Roman historians like Pliny the Younger and others. But he, they're saying to him, don't you know what's going on? He's drawing them out. He says, what thing? So they said, verse 19, to Jesus... Things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and the people and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, literally you might say expecting, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, uh, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us uh, went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Now, do you see what's going on here? These guys, Cleopas and this other disciple who we don't know, they have a perfect grasp on the facts. They know the facts. And this is important, again, to recognize, okay? Not only is it possible for Jesus to speak and us not recognize that it's him speaking to us, listen, it's possible for us to understand the facts and still be blind to the truth. Because Christianity isn't about just information. It's about transformation. It's about God doing something supernatural in our lives. So what does Jesus do? Verse 25, then he said to him, now remember, they still don't recognize who Jesus is when this happens. So they said to him, oh foolish ones, and so, so slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Brings them back to God's word. He says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning that beginning Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Then they draw near, the, near to the village uh, where they were going, and he indicated he would go further. But they constrained him, saying, "Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent." Far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? Now, I want you guys to not miss the impact of this. this I have to say, this is one of the sections of Scripture that blows me away. I go back to this section over and over again because as one who's called by God to teach the scriptures, sometimes I feel like, what's the point? Is this doing any good? But I go back to this passage and I think, okay, if the risen Jesus, when he wants to reveal himself to his disciples, if he goes and he teaches the scriptures, I think falling in his footsteps is a good idea. I love the fact that here's what he does, and this is what's important to recognize. It's important to recognize that it's necessary to see Jesus in light of the Scriptures. Do you realize that most religions in the world would like to claim Jesus as somebody good? Most religions. Even if they haven't heard of him. So some of the more Eastern religions, if you begin to explain who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, they go, yeah, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, he must be a god or he must have been a prophet or a wise man. But everybody wants to kind of claim Jesus as someone who, yeah, he fits into our worldview. He fits into what we think God must be like. Which is why, listen, God says it's necessary for us to see Jesus in light of the scriptures. That Jesus is the son of God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that we recognize that Jesus is is the the revelation of who who God is, the same God who revealed himself to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that we have an understanding of what this God is like. We understand understanding of what God wants to do. We, we have an understanding of what it was that the Messiah, God's chosen king, who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all looked forward to. What he was planning to do, what God's plan was with that chosen king. Here's how Paul talks about this, this necessity of, of us learning or, or seeing him through the teaching of God's word. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, to 23, he says, Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know, uh, never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolishness to the Jews who ask for, uh, for signs from heaven. Jews, you might say these were, of course, the Jews, specifically first century. They wanted a miraculous sign to prove that what they said was true. Now, what's ironic is that the the apostles did a lot of miraculous signs, didn't they? People still didn't believe. He says, and it's foolishness to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. These might be the intellectuals of their day. We get a lot of their, a lot of the value we have on reason and intellect is something we've inherited from the Greeks. So what he says, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Now, do you understand what Paul's saying here? Paul's saying, listen, here's what we do. In the same context, Paul says, we go into a city and we preach Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. And you know what happens? God does stuff. A bunch of people come to know him and begin to grow in him. And the Jews go, "Ah, "Nah, there can't be a Messiah who is crucified. God wouldn't have a king just to have him be crucified. And resurrected, Mm, that doesn't make sense to us. And the Greeks think, that's crazy. Gods don't die. That doesn't happen. That's crazy. But this is what God uses. This is important because, remember, what we're talking about is how does Jesus conquer our hearts? He does, through, through, does so through unlikely witnesses, but he also does through, listen, through supernatural encounters. You know, we we've uh, some of you guys who are maybe visiting today, We've prayed uh, for everyone who would come in and sit in these seats today. We've prayed, Lord, would you prepare their hearts? One of the things we were praying yesterday as we were in the city trying to talk to people about Jesus. Lord, you know, we pray you prepare people's hearts and that we'd have conversations and that we'd be able to tell them about Jesus. And we pray that because we recognize and we rest in the fact that what needs to take place in our hearts is something supernatural. You see, I, I can take pressure off myself as a preacher that I don't have to preach perfectly for God to do something because God wants to do something. You know what else? Some of you might be in a place where you're thinking to yourselves today, yeah, I, I want to believe, but I still have this question and that question and that question. And every time you think you're just about ready to believe, a new question pops in your mind. Yeah, but what about this? And What about that? And you're waiting to have all your questions answered. Guess what? I'm still waiting to have all my questions answered. But you know what I can't deny? I can't deny, one, who Jesus is in the Scriptures. And I can't deny that God's doing something in my heart. He's changing my appetites, He's realigning my affections, He's altered my future. God wants to do a supernatural work in your heart. We're not talking about, again, an idea. We're talking about the very person of God who wants to do a work in your heart today. These guys who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, they had gone to the University of Jesus, basically. (laughs) They still needed God to do the supernatural work. Not that God wasn't doing supernatural work through the teaching of Jesus, of course He was. But they needed this work that Jesus does through the Scriptures in their hearts. So it's through unlikely witnesses that he conquers hearts it's through it's through a supernatural encounter that he conquers hearts, but here's the last bit. He does so through personal relationship. Look at verse 33. So they rose up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon now, there's other stuff that's happened, of course, that the other Gospels record that aren't, isn't in Luke. And they, told, uh, and they told about the things that had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a Spirit. Now, come on, we would be the same way, all right? If I was up here preaching, all of a sudden, pop, Jesus shows up. We'd all go, Ah! I hate it when he does that, you know. (laughs) It would freak us out a little bit. But he says, then, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? And look what he says, notice. He says, behold my hands and feet. See that it is I myself. Notice, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here? Listen, Jesus is inviting his disciples to examine the evidence. We we know the story, right? Doubting Thomas, as we call him, which is kind of unfair because all the disciples were doubting, weren't they? (laughs) And what happens? Jesus says this thing specifically to Thomas. He says, Thomas, come on. Go ahead, put your finger in the nail scars of my hand. Put your, your finger in this hole in my side. Know that I am here. It's really me. The same Jesus that was crucified is now risen. Now this is important because, I, and this is the reason why I gave you those two websites earlier, is that, that Jesus invites us to examine evidence. He invites us to ask questions. You know, I'm a, I'm a cynic by nature. Uh, My wife would say, no, you're a pessimist. But no, I say, no, I'm a cynic. It sounds more intelligent. I'm a cynic by nature. I have a hard time trusting. I have a hard time believing. That's my natural personality bent. And I I, I have to say, sometimes I, especially when things are going bad, there's this thing that comes back in my mind. You know, maybe some evidence is going to come up to show me that this Jesus stuff isn't so trustworthy. You know, it's been almost 30 years for me. And that evidence still hasn't come up. In fact, every time I meet somebody new who is maybe highly educated or very bright or maybe educated in a a field that I think that might undermine what I understand about Scripture, they'll bring up these objections. I'm like, oh, well, I've heard that one a thousand times. There's an easy answer for that one. And it's amazing. It's amazing how often these questions come in our minds and we think, you know, either, oh, well, if he's God, I can't question. I just have to believe it's all about blind faith. No, it's not. He didn't say to his disciples, just believe. But Jesus, we don't see. Don't see, just believe. He does not say that. He invites them to, ex- to examine, check out the evidence. This is why the resurrection is so glorious to us. See, I, I don't think I could ever be a religious person. Not, not in the sense of believing that there's a God or, or sort of you know, being committed to some sort of religious act. I I just couldn't be that way. Before I was a Christian, I lived for myself. It made the most sense. It wasn't that I was the worst person in the world, but I just, I lived for me. I did what I wanted to do. Sometimes I still do that, to be honest. But you know what motivates me to think, no, I should live for God? There is a God worthy to live for? It's the resurrection. It's the reality that this Jesus had taught and lived in such a way that I go, that's exactly what I think God would do if he became a man. And then just as he predicts his death and resurrection, it comes to pass. And the evidence is just, yeah, it's outstanding. He invites his disciples to examine the evidence. And I want you to notice too, he's inviting his disciples. These These are men who knew him well. I want you to know, it's, it's, we're, not, we're not trying to encourage you here today, whether you, you're a member of Servants Church or you're here for the first time. Whoever you are, I, I want you to understand, listen, that the questions still come, so the examination needs to continue to happen. But if you're already a believer in Jesus, then ask Jesus the questions. Lord, would you help me understand how does this work? Or what does this mean? Or Can I know what this is? God's not afraid of your questions. In fact, this is one of the ways that we draw close to him in relationship is to ask the questions and see how he answers them. Then in verse 41 it says, but while they were, listen, notice, while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, there's two things that Jesus is doing here. One, he's, he's wanting to affirm his physicality, that he wasn't a spirit. You know, there's some false religions out there that teach that Jesus was only resurrected in spirit. And in fact, there, is, there was a false uh, idea uh, called Gnosticism that kind of arose in the, the latter part of the first century towards the second century. Anybody here ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? It's a false gospel. It's not a real gospel. that came out in the second to the fourth century, sometime between there. And it sort of alludes to Jesus being, the, the kind of, it, it alludes to things that these people believed, like that Jesus didn't really have a body, he was just a spirit. That's why the, the book of 1 John is really clear about anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh as a real human being is an Antichrist. So he's wanting to affirm his physicality, that he really did bodily resurrect. That's good news for us. Guess what? This old body's going to put on a new body someday. But also, listen, by doing this with food, he's doing something that we maybe wouldn't understand as much as 21st century Westerners. He's inviting them to relate to him right there. That's what food is in that culture. In that culture, to eat with somebody, to eat to eat some of their food was to say, I want to be one with you. This is why we read in the book of Revelation, you remember where, when Jesus says, I send the whole, behold, I send the door and I knock. If anybody will open, I will come in and what? I will dine with them. It's an idea of relationship, oneness, intimacy, closeness. This is how Jesus conquers our hearts by relationship. This is why Jesus conquers our hearts for relationship. This is why I often say, you know, I'm not religious. I have a relationship with God. It sounds a bit cliche, but you know, it's just true. It's true. The living God wants a relationship with me. He wants a relationship with you. Now notice, we're almost done. In verse 44 it says, Then Jesus spoke to them. He says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So Jesus is still going back to the Scriptures and saying, listen, this is what, how you can know what I'm like and who I am. Then he said to them, notice, thus it is written, and thus it was, what's the word? Necessary. For the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now I want you to stay with me for a minute. What is Jesus, what is the resurrected Jesus saying is necessary? One, he's saying it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, for God's chosen king to suffer. Why was it necessary? One, because the Old Testament scriptures predicted But two, listen, because that's the way God would deal with our sin. From all the way back in Genesis, you have this picture of man falls, God sacrifices. Man sins, God says, here's the sacrifice required for that sin. All throughout the scriptures. All of that points to the necessity of the sacrifice that has to be made. We, we learned this in the book of Hebrews, didn't we, Servants Church? We learned about how the blood of bulls and goats can only cover up sin, but the blood of Christ can wash away our sin. It has to do with this, guys. It has to do with this principle, this reality of forgiveness, that for in order for one party to forgive another party, the injured party must absorb the injury that was inflicted on them in order to forgive them. What God is doing, the perfect God who we should follow and obey, that perfect God who, who by rights should take away all the good things in our life because we refuse to follow and obey Him, that good God who who we have injured in our rebellion, not affected Him in a sense of not taking anything away from that God, but being offended uh, offended Him by our actions and our inactions, that God should judge us, us. He should pour His wrath out on us. But what does He do instead? He pours it out on His own Son. It was necessary, it had to happen. It's the only way that unholy people can have a real relationship with a holy God. It's the only way. It was necessary that Christ should suffer. Notice, it was necessary that the Christ should rise from the dead the third day. Do you realize if Jesus didn't die, as we just read earlier, remember what Paul said? We're still in our sins. His resurrection affirms everything he said about God, about how we're right with God, about what our future is with God. It was necessary because he, the Bible calls him the firstborn. The firstborn from the dead. And that's a picture of he's the first one to be resurrected to his perfect, eternal, fully human body. We're going to have the same ones. It was necessary that he be resurrected, that he might become the judge of all of us, that he might raise us from the dead. Notice also, verse 47, It was necessary that repentance and remission of sin should be preached. In other words, it's necessary for people to hear what their response is to be. You know how we're meant to respond to this risen Jesus? One, repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is we recognize that we've walked away from God, we've lived as if God isn't real, he doesn't exist, and repentance is, oh, I'm going the wrong way, I need to turn back to God. It means to turn and face God, to give him the due, to give him what he's due, his name. That's Repentance. Remission of sins is what? It's forgiveness. That we need to, to, that people need to hear that if we're willing to turn from our sin and turn back to God, that God, because of what Jesus has done, will wash away our sin. The good news. And in washing away our sin, He gives us also, we saw this right on Friday night, He gives us also His righteousness so that we can have this perfect relationship with Him. It's amazing. Jesus says it's necessary that people understand this. This is why he says to his disciples, in verse 48, he says, listen, I want this to be preached beginning at Jerusalem, but he says in verse 48, and you are my witnesses of these things. You know that this is who I am and what I'm saying to you. Behold, he says, verse 49, I send the promise of my Father upon you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that's going to come upon him, but come upon the disciples, excuse me. But he says, tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. Now, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And you can read the book of Acts and see what goes on. That uh, God, uh, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit so that God the Spirit would come live within each believer and give them power to declare these things to anyone who will listen. I want you to understand what this implies It implies that Jesus wants, listen, he wants every single person invited into the same relationship that the disciples had with him. I want you to think about that. Jesus calls these 12 men to follow him. He reveals himself to them. He tells them about his death and resurrection. He dies as he says. He rises from the dead as he says. Before he ascends to heaven, he spends 40 days doing things like we're reading today. Making sure they understand who he is and that he is trustworthy. And then he says, Listen, here's what I want you to do go and tell everybody else they can have the same relationship with me. Do you know what that means? That means you and I can have the same relationship with Jesus that the disciples had. Called to be his, called to follow him, knowing his forgiveness, knowing that we're loved in the same way he's loved. All that is ours. I'll close with this verse, these verses from Romans chapter 10. Paul writes, if you openly declare that Jesus is God's chosen king and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will not be disgraced, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never called on the name of the Lord, why not do it today? Maybe you're that person who knows the facts but has been blind to the truth. Maybe you're that person who believes but not for joy. The scriptures would say to you, God would say to you, believe. You're you're not going to be disgraced. Confess, call upon Him. You're not going to be cast out. You'll be saved. You'll be saved from the wrath that's due you. You'll be saved from the brokenness that is still upon you. He will come and change you from the inside out and one day you'll be made perfect just as He is perfect. You know, I don't know what your story is up until this point of your life. I don't know what your story is. But I am praying that your story might be on Resurrection Sunday 2017, I called on the Lord and He saved me. He came into my life and I know Him now more than a shared lunch or some decent coffee, we really want you to know this Jesus.